The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. I invite you to join together in the study of God's Word. Today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 23. You don't have a copy of the Bible. There's one under a chair close by. We're on page 958 in the Bible uh, you'll find in the chair. While you're looking there, if you're a guest with us, we'd love to know that you're here. We'd love to connect with you. So if you'd like to connect with us, there's a card in the back of a chair that you take and fill out the information on, drop it in the offering plate, and we will simply contact you uh, via phone or through the internet. Uh, We will not show up at your door, but we'd love to know that you're here and to connect with your family. We'd love to meet you after the service. I'm in the lobby. Our pastors and staff all have blue shirts, light blue shirts on. Just stop and introduce yourself and any questions that you have, we are happy uh, to help you find your way around Parkwood and navigate the life of our church uh, with us. Each week we study verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today we come to verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 10, invite you to stand as I read the word of the Lord. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered and sacrificed, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything, I do not, not, I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Lord, we ask now that you would take the essential, profound, base truths of Christianity taught in this text and permeate our lives with it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever been in a place like here, like church, in the sanctuary, somewhere on the campus, and somebody does or says something and you go, oh, wait wait a minute, don't do that, you're at church. This happens to me all the time. Shh, shh, the preacher's here. So I have a very direct question for you. Is it okay to have places in your life that you don't glorify God? Is it okay to live areas of your life where you give no conscious thought whatsoever what it means to be a Christian? For many, being a Christian is about discovering What permission you have? Can I do this or can I not? The word permission means authorization. That there's right 
and there's wrong, and here's where most of us are, and then there's the rest. Just the rest of life. Most of life is lived with no thought of the normal activity that we are part of day to day. How we work, how we play, how we treat our families, how we eat our meals, how we drive our cars. The text today speaks to the rest of life. It speaks to all of life. So here's my main idea. The glory of God, instead of permission, must dictate the choices and actions of followers of Christ. What is before us today is countercultural. This is not how the world around us thinks at all. We live in a me-centered world. It's also counterintuitive because our hearts are prone to me to think about what is best for me or for those that I care the most about. This text is the culmination of 10 chapters of everything that he said up to this point where he summarizes in this profound statement that whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. It also serves as an introduction to the next section which is dealing primarily with what we do when we gather together as believers of Christ. I've broken into two areas first. Permission alone must not dictate our choices and actions as followers of Christ. He says, quote, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He repeats, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And he said almost the identical thing in chapter 6, verse 12. If you look there. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. That's identical. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. This is a very personal application. But in chapter 10, he's dealing with others. But not all things build up. Let's break it down and think about it. All things are helpful, but not all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. So it, our decisions are not simply a question of can I do this? Is it lawful or is it authorized? Is it permitted? Clement, one of the early church fathers, said, quote, those who take advantage of everything that is lawful rapidly deteriorate into doing what is not lawful. In other words, if you make life about right and wrong everywhere, you will eventually end up in the wrong because you'll come up with a way to make wrong right. That's just the way our legalistic hearts are bent. That we will make what is wrong right. Freedom here, deciding what is right, is really asking the question, is this helpful? We are considering other people. Is this beneficial to a particular end? All things are lawful, but not all things build up, strengthen, or bring to completion. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, neighbor here is inclusive. He's not just talking about the Christian. He's also talking about the non-believer. Those whom we come into contact with. Romans 15, verse 1, just a few pages back to your left. Paul introduces here this same idea. And he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What we're dealing with here is those gray and controversial areas of life. And the way we answer those gray and controversial areas of life are with the law of love. So instead of me first, we're putting others first. Now, let me just use the parable of driving. Let's imagine we're in the car. We're on Interstate 85. We're coming to where 485 comes together. It's 4.30 in the afternoon. And as far as you can see, our, our, our stop, red lights. And you're beside a little white Honda Accord. And you've got 200 yards until the traffic jam. So you look over, and it's who can get to the traffic jam first. And if he cuts you off, ah! Do you think, you ever just stop to think how unchristian we act for one second? We might have improved getting home by one second. Maybe two. We, we are so me-centered, so selfish in how we approach things, that we unknowingly, regularly seek our own good instead of the good of our neighbor. There are three potential approaches to God and neighbor in this text. First, there's the legalist. Here's all the legalist is concerned about. I'm just here to glorify God. Who cares about anybody else? How this affects you, I could care less. The libertarian says, I just care about people. Who cares about God? We call these people in our society conservatives and liberals. Well, I'm a conservative. How about this? How about saying this? Well, I'm a Christian. Because a Christian with a gospel-centered, God-glorifying focus is concerned about God and his neighbor. We're not just concerned about one. We're concerned about both. Now what follows here are two examples of how you love your neighbor. And he, Paul uses the food sacrifice to idols issues again. It's not a reteaching. He's just given an example here, or a couple of examples, of how you glorify God and how you love your neighbor at the same time. Verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He quotes Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So I've already said this, if you were here earlier, if you went to the meat market, the vast majority of the meat that was sold in the meat market had passed through some temple where it had been sacrificed to idol and the rest of it was sold in a meat market. So here's what Paul's saying. You're a Christian, you approach the meat market and you start having this inner battle. Can I eat that meat or not? Can I eat that meat or not? Can I, I don't know. Can I, that's probably been sacrificed to an idol. Should I eat that meat? Now Paul said, don't go to the temple and eat the meat. Because that's confusing. That looks like you're worshiping the idol and you're tying yourself to demons. Don't do that. 
But you're standing there having this inner battle. Here's what Paul says. Stop it. Buy the meat and eat it. Oh, what if it was sacrificed to idols? He says, that's not the issue. The issue is God created the meat. And the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Buy the meat and go home and in a God-glorifying way, eat the steak. Enjoy it. Illustration number two. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go eat, to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Now this is the similar to above. You sit down at the table. Your unbelieving friend serves you a plate of food. You eat it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Thank God for the food. You eat the food. And before I move on from this, there's a big challenge. I just want you to look at the verse again. I just want you to ask yourself, what would be the big challenge in this verse to the modern reader? Let me, let me narrow it down. What would be the big challenge to the modern evangelical reader in the South? Here's the challenge. When is the last time a non-Christian invited you to dinner? Paul's talking to these Corinthians like this is normal. It's normal that as a non-Christian, you would sit at the table of a non, uh, as a Christian to sit at the table of a non-believer. And the reciprocal would be true too, that you would have been inviting non-believers into your home. We have so Christianized our world that we're not connecting at all any longer with non-believers. And that's just wrong, brothers and sisters. We ought to know our neighbors. And our neighbors ought to sit at our tables. Now, Back to the text. What do you do if you go to the unbeliever's house and the meal begins? These ribs came from the temple. Now you have a dilemma. He says, verse 28, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Why? For the sake of the one who informed you. For the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? Now he's answering that, those questions, in the midst of the context. Now, <clears throat> I want you to know there are two interpretations to this verse because Paul leads by saying, if someone says to you. He doesn't say, if the unbeliever says. So it's possible that he's either talking about the unbeliever who's invited you to their home or he's talking about the believer. So we're going back now several chapters to the knower from chapter 8 who's got this all figured out and says, I can eat meat sacrificed to an idol at any time and I'm going to teach everybody at my church how to do that. So I'm going to have you over to dinner and I'm going to walk in and go, look, ribs, idol worship, eat it. And Paul says, if that happens, don't you eat it. Not for your sake, but for his now, if the unbeliever comes in and says, oh, dinner, by the way, by the way, this is food from, 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 from the temple. This has been sacrificed to the idol. Just want you to know that before you eat it. Now, why did the non-believer tell you that? One of two reasons is why the non-believer tells you that. Number one, they want to, you to affirm that you're a hypocrite. That you claim to believe one thing, but you'll do the opposite given the opportunity. Or, number two, and this is even more frightening. 
that they think if you eat the food with them that you share in their idol worship. So either way, you refuse. Let me give you a real example from, from my life. I, it was one of my very first mission trips. I was overseas and uh, I was preaching. It was a group of pastors. We were invited by this young woman who was a fairly new believer uh, to her home where her mother was going to cook a very traditional meal for us. And we were all excited. Everybody was talking about how good this woman could cook. And we, we show up uh, at the house and we walk in this little vestibule area and we have to take your shoes off. And, and she's standing there with this large tray with shots of whiskey. And here's, here's what she said through the translator. Would you pastors like one? And we knew exactly what she meant. And immediately this text came into my mind and I said, no, thank you. And we all said, no, thank you. Because she was testing us to see, would we drink it? Will we participate? Now, I have to confess, I wish we would have because she went in the kitchen and drank every one of them. I'm just glad the cooking was finished before she served the tray. <clears throat> that was not at that moment just a simple question of right or wrong. I've been faced in other situations overseas where I would have done different and did different. We can talk about that later if you want to. The situation is not a simple right or wrong. Now, if God has said something's wrong, it's wrong. You don't do it. But in these things to where God has given us freedom, we have to make our decisions based on the good of the other person and ultimately the glory of God. And that's where he's going. That the glory of God must dictate our choices and actions as followers of Christ. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, before we proceed, I want you to look at verse 22, because verse 31 is the opposite of verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Or are we stronger than he? So if I'm just cruising through life, ignoring the fact of what God has said and what it means to live out my life as a follower of Christ, if I'm just cruising along, I'm provoking the Lord. The opposite of provoking the Lord to jealousy is glorifying the Lord. So here, he is glorifying God and calling on us to glorify God. Now we know God made us for his glory and because of sin, we fall short of the glory of God and that Christ came and to the glory of God, lived a sinless life, died in our place, bearing the weight of our sin, the punishment of our sin on the cross, died and was buried and three days later rose again that he might save us and that he might transform us and make us into glory bearers. In 1 Peter, it says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, God brought you from darkness to light so that you might glorify him. So what does glory mean? Glory means public praise, honor, or fame. One, one, one person said to glorify is to light something up brilliantly. So when you glorify God, let's be clear, 
We're not making God better. We're not trying to improve God when we glorify Him. We are simply, joyfully acknowledging and enjoying who He is. So let's say, somebody invites you over for a meal. They prepare a great meal for you. You eat the meal, then you follow the cook into the kitchen and say, that was really good, but let me give you a couple pointers on how you might do that next time. Well, first of all, you're not coming back if you're from the South. So just letting you know, that's how it works around here. All right? That's not what you're going to do. Somebody sits a good meal down in front of you. Here's what you're going to do. When you eat it, you're going to enjoy it. That's glorifying. You enjoy it. As you're enjoying it, you're saying to the person who cooked, this is excellent. This is good. Thank you for what you provided. And, and you're doing a third thing. You're picking a plate up and going, you got to try this. This is what it means to glorify God. We enjoy what God has given us. We speak to the glory and the joy of who God is. And we say to others, don't you want some of this? This is how we, as followers of Christ, bring glory to him. Now, most of us just think about the obvious things, how you glorify God. You come to a worship service, you sing, you honor God, you have daily devotions. That's honoring to God. But here's what Paul's getting to, that every area of our life, whatever you do, that the focus of our lives in every area is to publicly and privately bring honor and glory to God. Let me just use an illustration from my own life. When I, when I got serious about following the Lord and wanted to live and honor Him, Corinthians was such a dear book in my life. There were so many struggles I was dealing with as a young Christian. And one of the places that I struggled, idolatry, a lot of other things, were sports. Sports were way, way, way too important to me. And when I first applied the glory of God to sports, I applied it this way. I'm going to give everything I've got when I'm on the court or on the field, and I'm going to do my absolute best, and I'm going to prepare myself. And I remember one day I was sitting in a dugout and I thought, even a pagan does that. There should be something unique and different about what it means for me to do this to the glory of God. So let me ratchet ahead to my last season of playing an organized sport. I was 40 years old. Me and a group of old guys got together and played basketball in one of the local leagues. And one night we were playing a group of high school and college kids. Let's just say they were quicker. <laughs> and I was covering this hot shot kid. And I didn't even know I was doing this. This was from my past. And this kid kept moving around me too quick. So I just got a handful of his shorts when he would post up on me. <laughs> I'm just holding on to him. And when I'd feel him tug. I'd let him tug just a little bit. I'd let go of him. It was just enough to slow him down. I could keep up with him. He was going fine. I don't even consciously think about it. I'm just doing it. The gym is about half quiet. 
The ref goes, Hey, preacher, quit holding his shorts. (laughs) Whatever you do, you do it all the glory of God. See, here, here's, and I actually laid down sports for a while when I could not live as a Christian on the court. That's what it means to do it to the glory of God. It's how you treat another team. It's how you treat your teammates. It's how you handle adversity when it's coming. Did everything you do, even how you cover a quick kid who's half your age. That whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. Because the vertical, the vertical has everything to do with the horizontal. So how I bring glory to God affects the choices and decisions of how I affect you. Verse 32. Give no offense. I wish the ESV hadn't used that word, not because it's, it's bad translation. It's just offense is such a volatile word in, the 20, in 2020. People get offended over everything. The better way to translate this would have been put no stumbling block. Put no stumbling block before Jews or Greeks or the church of God. So he's, he's being very inclusive here. Don't, don't put a stumbling block in front of a religious person a pagan person, a non-believing person, or the church of God, your brothers and sisters of Christ, who, by the way, are all former Jews or Greeks. Put no stumbling block in front of them. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. This is from our growth group material, going deeper. The verb to please in 1 Corinthians 10.33 has the positive idea of accommodating oneself to the desires and interests of others. It is a Christ-focused, self-denying kind of accommodation that does not seek its own advantage, but instead seeks the good of his neighbor. We must get to know our neighbor with love, which includes an awareness and sensitivity to cultural and religious backgrounds with the purpose of seeking to please everyone so that they may be saved. 1 Corinthians 9.23 I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So I have to ask, how will the course of action that I take in my life today, right now, this afternoon, For my future, how will this course of action bring glory to God and point the unbeliever to Christ? Paul sums it up in this statement, verse 1 of chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now when we read this, we can say, well, this is some kind of holier life that is unattainable. No, Paul is talking about something real here. And what he's talking about is a sacrificial life. What he is confronting continually with the Corinthians is this me-centered way of living. And the ultimate way that we confront it is we look to Christ. That Christ lived a sacrificial life. Philippians describes it this way. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what kind of mind did Christ have in himself? Christ sacrificed. He laid down his life. He put others before himself. And what Christ sacrificed becomes for us is the norm for Christian behavior. It's the pattern for how we live. It is the method of our evangelism. That we live lives that reflect the great one who sacrificed on our behalf, Christ. And we lay down our own interests for the interests of others. And we have the mind. We, we, we have to think like Christ. And the only way we're going to think like Christ is if Christ becomes the focal point of our lives. So here's my so what question then. Is the glory of God dictating my choices and actions as a follower of Christ? Let me ask it to us collectively. Is the glory of God dictating our choices and actions as followers of Christ? In Colossians 3.17, he says almost the same thing. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I fear that for so many of you, that you have lived so long in a world of permission and preference that you fail to see the good gifts of God. That life is either about, can I or can I not? Or, this is what I want. And because you live like that, you don't see the good things that God has given you. Further, in an age of pleasure, where people do whatever they want, when they want to, I have a question to our age. Where is the joy? Why are people so unhappy? When everybody's doing what they want to do when they want to do it. It's because for the legalist and the person who lives in license to do whatever they want to do, we are both ignoring God's good gifts. We are failing to recognize God for who He is. We are failing to glorify Him. So we've got to move beyond our personal preference and ask how we personally and how we collectively together can sacrifice so that the Lord is glorified. Here's a question I have for you. How have you altered your plans this past week, large or small, for the good of other people? How have you altered your life this week for the sake of a non-believer and pointing them to Christ? When you show up to be a part of the body of Christ, here's what you've got to overcome. You've got to overcome your consumerist impulse that when you get here, something good's got to happen for you. Instead, you've got to come here with the idea, how do I serve others? How do I love others? When we leave here, we've got to ask the same question. How do I serve and love others? How do I seek the good of others? How do I point others to Christ? I'm going to use an illustration from a missionary in just a moment, but I want to ask two questions before I do. Question number one. Do, Christian, do missionaries 
live more of a Christian life than the rest of us? Let me ask it a different way. Do we get to live less of a Christian life than a missionary? Let's just think about how we talk. How we describe the two different lives. lives. Now what I'm going to read to you is from a man who this week, after 20 years of service, tried to return to the country that he has served for the sake of the gospel, and he was turned away at the border and will not be able to come back. This has happened to multiple of his colleagues over the last several years. This has been the mode this country has used. A family shows up, they let the wife and children through, and they deny the husband. Because of this, he didn't bring his family with him this week. He went alone. And as he was denied at the border, an immigration in the airport, he was placed in a holding cell for the night where they placed him on a plane the next morning where he left. While he was in the holding cell, this is part of what he wrote. And when I read it Friday morning, I said, this is 1 Corinthians 10. I want you to listen. This man's lost his career. His life, his friends, his church. Quote, I'm grateful for the many laughs with my friends. I'm grateful there are now 7,000 believers in a country where there were 800 when we arrived. I'm grateful for the never say die never say die spirit of believers he names two who have spent much time in jail for their faith I love this I'm grateful for good food with friends and the people of my country who will literally drop everything to do whatever you ask I'm grateful for people who work together for the good of the gospel without regard for team or organization. Mostly, I'm grateful for a great God who uses frail creatures of dust like us to accomplish his purposes. What's this brother saying? Glory to God. I don't know what's facing you today. I don't know what is before you today. I just want to say two things with love. God owes you nothing. He has given you everything. He has given you new life through His Son, Jesus Christ. He has called you into relationship with Him. He now allows you, through Christ, to do that which you could not you no longer fall short if you are in Christ. So, my brothers and sisters, glorify God. Well, you don't understand. I don't. I don't. I don't understand your life, but I understand who saved me. 
He gave up everything for me. Everything. He's my example. And the Bible says from Paul, you follow me as I follow Christ. That's who we emulate. The self-sacrificing one who glorified God in everything that he did. Let's pray. Lord, as we bow before you, I ask my own heart the question again in this moment. As my brothers and sisters and friends ask themselves, is the glory of God dictating my choices and actions as a follower of Christ? Lord, I confess on behalf of all gathered here that we live far too much in simple permission and preference. So Lord, forgive us for seeking our own glory and our own way. Convict us when we continue. Bring us to yourself. And Lord, I pray for the men or women or the young people gathered here who have been confronted with the reality of their own sinful heart and that Christ has come to set them free. May they repent of their sin and turn to Christ today. And Lord, I pray, not as some kind of slogan or a part of our membership expectations, but that it will be a reality that the members of this local church will glorify God in whatever they do. May you be honored and may people who do not know you come to faith as a result of how we seek to honor you. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.